broadcasting from an undisclosed location, from a secret hunting spot known only to him, and the guy who told him about it, and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics. Here we are back for 2016. I'm Stephen Spargo, and yes, this is The Hunting Show. And although this is the first show for 2016, I kind of intended this to be the last show we do from the studio. So this studio was my first go at a podcasting studio. I built broadcast studios. In fact, I'm less than four metres away from my original broadcast studio. I've had two live radio stations actually out of this room. But unfortunately, as things change, I'm now doing some broadcasting out of this room for other people and hosting servers and things, and we get a bit of noise, a bit of extra noise that we didn't initially get. So I've built another studio. It's not quite finished. It's getting there. And I will be recording some new stuff out of a new studio with new equipment very, very soon, and I'm really looking forward to that. It's uh, it's kind of everything I wanted now, you know, rather than a, a mishmash of gear, I've managed to buy a little, borrow a little, reuse quite a bit from the studio, and I'm really going to be able to use the microphone equipment. See, in the studio, um, I'm geeking out here. I can't use the microphone I'd really like to because, well, it's too sensitive, and you'd hear the fans uh, from the server and the other gear that we host in here. Anyway, have you been getting out into the hills? I certainly have been a number of times and done a few overnighters, and I got a bit peopled out over December. Between Christmas and work and a whole lot of extra stuff in town being really busy, I got to that point where I just needed to get away from people, and I managed to do that very successfully, disappeared into the hills, and it's amazing what a few nights in the middle of nowhere can do for you. Incredible. I came back uh, completely re-energized. Again, I keep bring, I come back to that point. It's not just about the hunting for most hunters. It's about where you are and who you're with. And I was with a really good mate, had good food, uh, good chats, talked a lot of bollocks, you know, as you do. Um, there was uh, much shit spoken and had a really, really good summer. But summer's not over and I will be getting out and we're hoping to do some more shows actually out in the hills in the year coming and the plan it's coming together we're going to do as much of that as we possibly can this week's interview is with someone who describes himself as an outdoorsman and after listening to his credentials or his list of activities i'd say he's an adventurer an outdoorsman and a purist at heart i'm joined by phone by with jared ream and jared how are you good thanks good thanks Stephen. how are you oh bloody hot yeah, it's been a really scorching day today, actually. Oh, it's smoking, and I've just got home and walked into a smoking hot studio, and you didn't hear the little preamble I did before this, but this is my last session, actually, in the studio. I built a new one, and it's going to be much more comfortable, closer to the air conditioning, yep. um, not in the back of the shed. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Now, just to kick it off, Jared, can you st- tell us a little bit about your background? What do you do? What what got you into the craft of hunting? Um. Probably mainly my father. Um, he's he's been uh, hunting most of his life as well, so I sort of grew up with that. And I remember um, getting on his case when I was when I was a little fella um, about getting out hunting, and 
he said I needed to wait till I was about five um, to do that. So I waited to the day and then um, got, got taken out rabbit shooting for the first time, which was a real buzz. Um, and just, just to watch, of course, and uh, see what it's all about and learn about firearms and firearm safety and all the rest of it. And so by the time I, um, I reached nine, uh, he bought me um, a single-barrel 12-gauge shotgun and um, I'd already been out duck shooting with him quite a bit, uh, but hadn't actually obviously had a gun or shot anything. And um, so that was how I started really in duck shooting. Um, but I'd had a little bit of a lead into it, um, you know, before then. Um, and then um, that just sort of went from there. My, both my brother, I've got one brother, and he had the same opportunities um, in the hunting side of things as I did. Uh, but he chose sort of more uh, team-related sports um, to pursue and, and I was just totally taken by the hunting and the um, just the feeling of camaraderie with fellow hunters um, and we see that stage my father and his mates um, and just the outdoors just got me hooked really um, and being able to put food on the table so I just progressed from there and um, by the time I was 13 I was um, I got interested in bow hunting or bows and arrows and um, started bow hunting um, and it wasn't till I think I was about 20 that I started um, black powder hunting. And my father had always been involved in um, black powder rifles and building rifles and things like that. And, and he hunted with them for many years. I think he's coming up 40 years now that he's been hunting with them. And um, so I sort of grew up with that side of things, but never really, I was interested in it, but it never really um, took me like the bow and arrow did. And, and um, it was something different with the archery. So. I uh, pursued that for quite a number of years, from about 13 to about 20, um, doing a lot of hunting and a lot of competition archery um, in the bow hunting scene. Um, so field archery, I think it'll be mainly referred to. Um, and then I, one day I just decided to, to grab a, a muzzleloading rifle that my father had had in the cupboard um, and went on a hunt with him instead of taking my bow just for a change. Um, I'd accomplished quite a few goals with the bow um, in terms of what I'd set myself, um, hunting-wise and target-related stuff. So I, I was sort of ready for a new challenge and thought I'd just try the muzzleloader. And I hadn't actually, it wasn't a premeditated thing. I just grabbed it one day and went out and I shot a deer. And I thought, this is this is pretty cool. Um, being with my father's rifle and all, um, it was quite a quite a driver. Um, and it was a, just a completely new world um, in terms of not just the hunting side of it, because essentially coming from bow hunting, it was very, very easy yeah. <laughs> um, versus putting an arrow through something. Um, so I still got in close. I still, you know, enjoyed the hunt and the stalk. And then the finishing off was with a bullet, but it was fired from a, a primitive weapon. And, and there was something about that that just sort of made sense to me. Uh, it felt right. Um, I was still using all my skills as a bow hunter, but instead of putting an arrow through the through the target, I was using a muzzleloader. So um, it was really nice. And then, but and when I talk about the whole black powder world, if you like, um, it comes with a whole lot of, um, you know, you've got to cast your own balls. Um, you know, pretty much you're preparing your shot every time, so it's like baking a cake in the rifle, if you look at it that way. Mm. Uh, but there's all the accoutrements that you carry, um, which you make. So I, I hunt in uh, moccasins. I choose to hunt in leather moccasins, which I make myself. I, I hunt in American Indian leggings, uh, which I make myself. I make my own belts, um, knife sheaths, knives, um, bags. Pretty much anything I want, I look at what I want to put in a pouch or a bag, and and I know the, the dimensions that I have to that I need to fit that that gear in, and I make a pouch to suit it. So it's very um, personalised and it's very um, rewarding. 
And um, so from a young age, I, I learnt a lot of sort of leathercraft skills, and and since then I've I've taken and gone into more beating and um, American Indian type beating and bits and pieces like that. So it's um it's more than just the hunting; it's actually becoming um what what defines the rifle in that period almost. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you don't have to, but I sort of chose to, and I got quite involved in it um, and quite interested, and it sort of became became a big part of my life and and, and a driving force, if you like. Um, and, and then the ethics and, and the values um, related to that period, especially when it when it's related back to the American Indian stuff, that's what that's what became quite important to me. And I realised that that's um, that was it was sort of I was almost pre pre-programmed for that sort of existence, mm. if you like. I want to talk um, to you more about that American Indian side of things. Yep. Because I understand, and please correct me, because I'm no by no means an expert. I'm like every radio host. I pretend I know everything. Uh, <laughs> that the American Indian side of it, it's not just one tribe, is it? So the the, the culture is dramatically different from one it's end huge. of their culture to the other. Is there any particular yes. uh, tribe or style that you subscribe to, or are you kind of just uh, mixing it all together and taking the best bits for yourself? Well, it's generally, it's, yeah, I use it in a sort of a general, um, broad, broad term. Um, but I'm, I'm very interested in the probably more the Plains Indian, um, the Sioux tribe, um, and that sort of that sort of area, if you like, um, mainly because I'm very interested in American Indian teepee, which um, the the Plains tribes are nomadic hunters and they use the teepee as their main lodging, um, and also their their dress and their, their beadwork patterns and beadwork styles and all that sort of stuff. So. That's probably why I've been drawn to that, but for no other reason, really. Um, I'm, I'm interested in American Indian culture as a, as a whole, um, and um, obviously they were they were very diverse um, from you know right throughout um, North America, so uh, and right you know right down to the south. So it's it, it is a very broad topic, um, and most of the time, um, I mean, I'm reading a lot of literature on them in, a, in a more of a general sense in terms of their values and ethics and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then their, their different styles of how they um, built their, you know, built their lodges and how they existed and that sort of stuff. But there, there are common trends which which run right through. Um, the main the main thing for me were um, I just have I just have quite a strong um, belief in only sort of taking what you need and what you what you use and using everything of, of what you gather. Um, from a hunting point of view, and that and that goes with um, foraging as well, um, because if you if you take you know heaps of stuff, it's it's obviously not sustainable. Um, and those it wasn't until I started reading into it, so I got into the black powder and the muzzle loading, and then and obviously I had an interest in the in the era that surrounded um, the West and the American fur trapper, mm. um, because obviously they were they were they carried muzzle loaders and black powder rifles. So there's quite a broad, broad era there as well, and then and then from that sort of spun out um, this um, this coexistence. We, you know, a lot of books I read, they a lot of them, a lot of the fur trappers sort of started coexisting with American Indian and and almost um, adopting their way of life and their their values as well. And I sort of and so I I, I researched more on the American Indians and thought, well, hang on, this is this is really interesting because. Um, when I when I read you know read more and more about their their values and beliefs and and ethics um, for life and just existing, um, I sort of thought, well, hang on, this is this is exactly what I think. This is the way I'm going about things already. 
um, and, and starting off as a bow hunter, I think, and being very selective about what you're doing and very, very um, sort of um, precise, I suppose. Um, you, I think that's where it came from. I wasn't somebody that sort of went out with, you know, um, a repeating rifle and, and flattened everything I saw. So I think that's where it sort of started, and then it's, it's, it evolved to, to this, this strong belief and just sort of taking what you need um, and then go back next time and, and, and really the, the respect for the animal that you're hunting and the um, learning, learning the, the craft of hunting versus the craft of shooting. Um, and, yeah, the, the American Indian ways just reiterated that. And it wasn't until I read it and I went, well, this is, this is like me in a book. Um, so it wasn't so much as I changed my ways to, to be in, in, in line with them. It's like I've just sort of defined the way I am and what I'm doing um, more than anything else. So for you, we talk, when I introduced you, I talked about you being a purist. How, what do, you, do you sit there looking at some of the technology and some of the things that hunters are starting to use? And it's all about probably getting the, the odds in their favour. And do you shake your head, or is it just not you? Um, it's just not me. I don't shake my head at all. Um, I've got a, a really good example is, um, um, you know, archery gear and bows and arrows these days. Um, you know, the modern gear is, is, is very refined and, and, and it's just it's developed so fast and so well that it's um, that much more effective. Um, from, a, from a newbie picking up a bow um, and, and with a bit of gear, you know, I, I used to shoot, put, put it this way, we'll just put it in perspective, I suppose. I used to shoot a, um, I started off shooting a longbow then a recurve and then a compound. And so, if you like, I started with a very basic bow and I progressed up to a, in those days, the, you know, the more modern compound of the time, which was still relatively basic compared to now, you know, the bows nowadays. Um, and then I just shot that bow, um, what we call bear bow, so no sights or anything like that. So it, it required a lot of shooting um, and I used fingers to release the string and so a fairly basic form of, of bow hunting, I suppose you'd say, um, without any sort of extras on the bow um, in terms of sights or release aids and things like that. So um, I, I had to practice a lot to get to get proficient at being able to put the arrow where I needed it um, in a one-off hunting situation, considering I was essentially an instinctive shooter. So that was just hours and hours when I was growing up um, out in the backyard shooting shooting hundreds of arrows. And and But it, it, it developed a skill um, and quite a primitive skill, whereas um, I've had just mates recently um, buy um, new bows and, and get you know, essentially a package deal with sights, release aid, bow quiver and, and, and arrows shooting very flat trajectories, very fast and they, you know, with a bit of coaching, um, without having to deal with the variables of um, finger pinch or finger releasing um, and and being able to judge trajectory of your arrow to place it where you need to without sights, so they, they, they're, they're, putting, they're putting groups, good good solid sort of um, hunting groups, I suppose you'd say, at 30 metres uh, in no time that they can group their arrows really well. And it just goes to show um, that the gear is that much more tailored to the archer and, it, and, it, and it's assisting them. And it's, it's no different with rifles. You see, the, you know, the modern rifles are coming through, high-powered rifles with really nice scopes, really good gear, really good ballistics. And, and at the end of the day, it is a develop, the development of, a, of the hunter in his gear to become more and more proficient. So I don't see anything wrong with that. That's just that's just society developing. Um, but I, I sort of I don't shake my head, but I just I'm just not into that. I've got high-powered rifles in my gun cupboard, but 
I have done um, some pest control in the past for um, different organisations, um, shooting, you know, rabbits through goats, through the goats and pigs. And so I've got the military-style rifles, repeating rifles, which are essentially tools. You know, you can flatten flatten animals on a, in a pest control scenario quite quickly in tight bush. That's what you need. You know, you need something that's going to pump out some, some rounds and get, get the job done. Um, same with rabbits, you know, semi-automatic 22s and things. But at the end of the day, when it comes to recreational hunting, I go straight for a muzzleloader or a bow. And that's just purely because it just gives me more satisfaction. And that's just a personal thing. Can I ask you, how do so, you go? How, do you get much? Yeah, I do. You know, I do well. <laughs> yeah. I don't, um, I Not don't, to be a I'm smart really, ass, I'm just going, you know, you, you've, yeah. you've really put the odds... Well, not against you, but you really are stacking them. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's about the challenge for me, I think, at the end of the day. And, and I see hunting as a challenge every time. And, and I'm more about um, creating the opportunity in, in, in my favour. So I, I try to hunt, you know, and, and think about what I'm doing. And I'm very calculated. And then um, stack, the odd, you know, stack the odds as much as you can. And if, if the opportunity doesn't present itself or doesn't present the right opportunity... I'm quite happy to turn away and not take a shot or not try and take a shot that's not the best shot or the most appropriate shot to kill the animal. I'd much rather turn away and, and stalk away or just walk away and come back another day. I, <laughs> I, want, you to, I want you to elaborate on that more. So you, you're talking about uh, what, what is relatively primitive hunting, I suppose. Yep. And you're using pure skill uh, or... Well, you're really refining that skill down. Tell me about some of those refinements you've found work for you. You know, I'm sitting here quite interested, you know. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, I think, um, I would put it this way. It's, it's a bit like, um, I suppose the easiest way to explain it is, is, is if you're stalking through the bush and, you, and, you, and you're walking along really quietly, as quietly as you can, wind's in your favour, everything's in your favour, you're hunting a nice sunny face, you know, everything screams, um, you know, the sign on the ground, um, everything's screaming, there should be an animal here, whatever the animal is you're hunting. So essentially you're doing everything right. Then if you if you have a lot lapse in concentration, say, which which happens, and an animal bursts from cover on your right, say, runs across in front of you, um, you either take a running shot at it or you wait to see if it's going to stop and look back at you in which case you could take a snapshot at it. Um, or you could say, well, I buggered that up because that animal is alarmed, it's on to me. It's either smelt me or it's heard me or it's been standing in the bush watching me. In which case you say, well, you know, you won that one. <laughs> mm. Carry on. And, and wait, for a, wait for a deer that's, that you walk around the corner as quietly as you can with all the same things, the same factors in your favour, and there's a deer standing there with its head down grazing. Or looking the other way, and you think, okay, that one I've, I've got the drop on him, and essentially, that's what you need to be doing with a boat with bow hunting, because you have to be able to get in close to the animal, or get a clear shot at it um, without it knowing you're there, because essentially they they'll jump the string if they know you know if they know you're there. So it's really, it's really, um, it's a, I suppose it's a personal thing, and I, I'm not saying I'm not the guy that would, you know, um, um, you know, nine days into a ten day trip a deer breaks from cover and runs across in front of me, I wouldn't take a running shot. I'm just saying that preferably I would, I would I'd rather stalk a deer and shoot a deer that doesn't know I'm there. There's no clue at all. You know, the, either the arrow goes through it or the, or the, um, the muzzle loader goes off and it doesn't have a clue where that sound comes from or what, or what made that smoke. 
um, and then it, it trots away or it, or it falls down dead. Um, and by trotting away, I mean it, you know it, it, uh, with a with a muzzle loader because it's a slow projectile. It puts a hole through the through the engine room, um, and the animal bleeds to death like it would essentially with um, an arrow. So they they can travel sort of anywhere from 10 to 30 metres sometimes, depending on how alarmed they are. But most of the time they'll just you'll fire the shot. They'll might, might you know um, scamper for the 10 metres, stop, look back, and think what was that. In which case you just stay still, and then they trot on, and you normally see them see them keel over, or they just you find them up a bit further with a good blood trail. So that's I suppose essentially what what I was um, what I was talking about in terms of um, if you're going to hunt that way um, to be to be effective and to be efficient with your kills, and I and I like to put meat on the table every time I go out. If I if I'm looking for meat, um, obviously if I've got a freezer full of meat and I'm going hunting. Maybe the the, uh, the urge to actually kill something isn't as strong because I know I've already got a freezer full of meat, so let's just go and practice hunting, or or take photos. So, or if I'm you know if if I'm looking for a stag, then I'm not going to shoot hinds and vice versa. But generally speaking, I'm not really a trophy hunter. I'm more a more a um, meat on the table man. So, um, any anything with with antlers or or good horns is, is a bit of a bonus. But um, yeah, so I suppose it's just a matter of. The, the way I sort of do things um, from that point of view, taking my shots um, and not trying to force an opportunity that isn't really isn't really um, exposing itself or, or presenting itself to me. Um, you, and I, what, what are your thoughts with regards to things like camouflage and that kind of thing? I mean, you're talking about going out there in what I'd consider to be pretty obvious attire. I don't know if there's a bit Yeah, it is. It's, it's, a, it's a good point because... Um, my early days of bow hunting, I'd, I'd be full camouflaged up, and I definitely agree with that. Um, and now, with my very primitive bow hunting I'm doing, um, I'm less camouflaged, or I, I don't actually wear any camouflage pattern. I wear clothes with, I suppose you'd say, sort of antique style patterns on them a little bit, but most, and, and maybe a bit of a bit of soot on my face. But other than that, that's about it. So, the um, obviously, I, got, I can't go. Um, wrapping a deer skin over my back these days and walking through the bush <laughs> like they might have done, um, the Indians might have done in the old days. But um, I still believe that it's not necessarily, I'm sure, flashing white hands and, and white legs and that sort of stuff I think is a, is a bit of a, um, um, a not, not, not such a good look in terms of um, exposing yourself to the deer and, and they're going to see that sort of movement. But if you're generally in fairly, fairly flat colours um, that don't stand out, and I do wear blaze in some cases where I'm um, in highly um, highly occupied areas um, around the raw and that sort of stuff. So I'm, that's, that's about the only thing, sort of a, a, you know, one of those camo blaze vests um, and maybe a blaze cap. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, I, I also duck shoot, so I, and, I, and I believe that, um, especially for mallards, they're, they're, quite, they're quite onto it. They've got keen eyesight, and I do camo myself right up for that sort of stuff. So... I, I, camo does work, and some of the new patterns these days are just amazing. They're, um, they're, they're really, um, like, like all the gear for hunting, it's really stepped that up a notch, um, which, which I think is in, in the favour of the, of, the, of the modern bow hunter as well. Mm. So if you've got, before we move on to our next topic, if you've got two or three things that you would like to really push with someone that's looking at getting into close quarters hunting, which is whether that's with your muzzle loading or archery. Yep. 
what are those three things? What are the three things I need to do or the three mistakes maybe that people make? Um, I just think they, if you really, really learn the quarry you're hunting, um, I think um, new hunters these days, possibly one of their downfalls is the, the fact that they're in, a, in too much of a hurry to, to bag their first animal, whatever it may be, um, without sort of taking the time to actually learn um, whether they're with you know an experienced hunter, which is obviously easier, or whether they're just on their own. And um, but but actually learning the quarry, learning learning its habits, learning where it likes to hang out, where it you know w- what its um, spore looks like, uh, what the vegetation it likes eating at different times of year, altitude where it lives at different times of year, all that sort of stuff. And it and and if you actually spend the time to learn that, you it becomes second nature. And, Without even knowing it, you find yourself hunting in the right areas more often, um, and it it doesn't happen overnight. Um, I've, I've I've taught a few guys to hunt, a few young guys to hunt, and, and got them their first animals, and and they all tend to be the same. They they they're, they're um very gung ho into the into the process, and and they they'll always bump deer to start with when you put them out front the first time, and that's generally because they're just you know too. That they're too too much thinking about getting the rifle up and pulling the trigger, versus actually getting in on the on the on the quarry, and then providing they've done their homework and in terms of practicing with their rifle, and they can make a good um, a good clean shot, then that's that's a um, that's a sideline really the shooting side of it as long as you're accurate enough, um, and so it's about getting yourself in the in the position and giving yourself the best opportunity you can to make a clean kill. And the, and the last thing um, I would ever want to do is wound an animal. So I'd rather not pull the trigger if there was a risk of wounding it. And, of course, this is, there's a lot of variables involved, so sometimes it does happen. But, um, you know, the thought of a, an animal running around out there wounded is, is not a good look for me. And it, and it doesn't, you know, it's one of the things that really, um, you know, creates sleepless nights, I suppose. And other people are, are possibly different. It's just an animal to them. Um, but at the end of the day, if, you, if you're putting meat on the table, you want it to be good tasting meat, nice and tender. You don't want it to be hyped up with adrenaline and, and um, you know, tough. So um, definitely learning, learning the animal, learning, learning the quarry that you're hunting and the areas um, and taking your time. Um, the other thing is obviously, which I've just mentioned as well, is becoming proficient with your, with your um, weapon, whatever that will be. Um, and that just takes time and, and effort once again um, and practice. And um, it goes for most things um, in life. If you want to get good at it, you need to you need to practice and practice a lot until you're completely proficient in, in a lot of different situations and scenarios. Mm. It's, it's very easy to, to get home at the end of the day uh, in the summer and go outside and shoot a really good group with your, with your bow, but can you do that first thing in the morning when your fingers are a bit frozen? Um, you know that, that sort of thing, uh, and if if you can't feel the bowstring, it makes it harder to make a good clean shot. So, w- will, will you make that shot? You know what I mean? Um, are you ready for that? Um, so go out first thing in the morning when it's a bit frosty and, and practice then. So just those sort of things. So you really get yourself on the zone, so that so that when you're actually in the moment, it's not it's not foreign. You, you know you know your rifle, you know your bow, you know you can put the arrow there, you know you can put the ball there. I don't think twice about. Whether my whether my muzzleloader is going to function, I practice with it in the rain. I make sure it will go, and then when I'm in the in the situation in southwestland hunting tar, say it's not, I'm not thinking about 
if my flint lock's going to fire at this bull target sitting 60 metres away from me, I'm thinking about waiting for the right opportunity when that bull tar stands forward side so I can put a clean kill on it before it knows I'm there. And things like that. So it's just a matter of becoming completely familiar with it. Um, and, and the new modern gear allows you to do that much easier and much quicker. So there isn't there isn't as much ex- excuse, if you know what I mean. Um, and, and, all, and, and actually, the people that I've taken out and talked to hunt have, have taken good, clean kill shots um, on their first animals, which is great. Mm-hmm. And it... And if you if you start off in that confident, positive way, it only builds from there. If 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 they were to wound their first animal or make a complete botch up of it, it's you know they're sort of scrambling from then on, and they don't know the right way to do it. So I'm I'm all about teaching them the ground the groundwork really well and and refining that. And I actually um, generally don't don't let them take a rifle the first few times. I, I teach them bushcraft, I teach them stalking, we get in close to animals, we watch them, then I send them out on their own with a camera, and then I get them to come back with a good photo of the animal. So that that proves to me and to them they can they can do the hunting but as soon as you put a rifle in their hands, providing they can shoot accurately, they're gonna bag it they're gonna bag an animal. Mm. And and it's it just becomes um, I think it's the right it's a process of learning that's important. I suppose would be the, the third point. Yep. And, um, and and obviously picking up with somebody that, that is, um, has got some experience or is willing to teach um, newbies. And um, that's, that's uh, very important too. Not everyone has a father that does it. Um, not everyone has a, a good friend that does it or someone they know. Um, so it's, and it takes time to um, get confidence with somebody or get to know someone well enough who you, who you haven't known um, before you'll actually take them out hunting anyway. So it's, it's actually quite a process. And um, but by at the end of the day, it's it should be it should be. Um, I always make time for people that that ask if you know what I mean because I think it's important to give them the good grounding and that sort of thing and a good respect for what they're doing and the animals they're hunting, mm. whatever it is. It, just going, you, you've obviously got a philosophy about using every possible part of the animal. Yep. Do, do you take that to the nth? I mean, are you talking about making sure that you carry the animal out and the bones? The meat. Yeah, the, no, I do. Tell, I tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I generally, um, if, if possible, depending on my location, but if possible, I do. I normally carry the, the animal whole um, or in, in fairly big chunks um, back to camp. Um, and the bones, I'll give an example of a trip I did um, just last year um, where I, I shot a um, speaker and I carried it back to camp. It's quite a big stag and butchered it up and so the only thing I left on the spot was um, the head. Um, it was only a small stag. I didn't I didn't need the antlers at that time. Um, I didn't need I wasn't gonna tan the skin. I didn't I didn't need leather so I left the skin behind and the uh, the head. Obviously I'd normally use the brain the brains to tan the skin of the of the animal. Um, so I'm I'm using pretty much taking all the cuts I can off off the animal, as much meat as I can physically carry. Um, I walked out of there with a pack weighing 45 kilo. When I got back, I weighed it, um, and I think 18 kilo of that was meat. So you got a fair, fair chunk of the animal, and um, I took as many of the bones as I could and put them in my dog's saddlebag, and she carried about nine kilo of bones out. <laughs> so essentially, she's provide. You know, we've together we've we've hunted this animal, we've provided a number of feeds for herself as a dog, a number of feeds for myself and my family, um, and. And I suppose it's the 
the enjoyment and the satisfaction of, of actually doing that, um, which is important to me. I, I would, I've never shot something and left it um, because why pull the trigger, really? That, that's my philosophy um, on it because if I don't need it, then just stalking on it. Enjoy, I, I enjoy the stalk. I mean, to me, the, the pulling the trigger or the releasing the arrow in the big scheme of things is, is the the thing that has to happen to put the meat on the table. Mm. And if you don't need the meat on the table, then it's just a messy process that doesn't need to be done. <laughs> and I'm, I don't see hunting as a blood sport, but I'm a hunter-gatherer at heart. And, and I'll, if I want to eat it, I will pursue it to the end of the earth to kill it. But if if I don't need to eat it, then I won't, if you know what I mean. Just a, um, what do you think of this... Uh, like places in certain places in Canada and in the states, one of the rules about hunting, particularly elk or deer, and uh, and black bear, is that if you shoot it, if you no matter what form that takes, you must take the entire carcass out. It's made hunters very selective. What, what do you think of that as a concept? Yeah, I think it is good. Um, I think we're very lucky in New Zealand not to have to you know buy tags and things for animals, um, and and unfortunately, a lot of our game animals are seen as pests, and um, you know they, they get tried to be eradicated, which which I don't really uh, um, you know agree with. I think if there's it, it is a fine line. Obviously, if the, if the population got too much, and, and I have dealt with that with um, with some pest control with goats and rabbits, you know they need to be killed off. And but at the same time, even even if I'm pest controlling rabbits um, by shooting them, I'm taking as many of those rabbits as I can, generally um, for my dog. Um, or for myself, and, and and but you can only use it, and you only need so many. Um, if you're shooting hundreds of them um, down the South Island, that the, then obviously they've got to go in an awful hole, and that's just a, um, a necessary a necessary culling that has to happen with with anything if it's left to to build up too much. Um, so it is up to hunters to control those numbers as as much as they can. Um, but I think for the sport um, to not be seen as a budboard, it needs to be controlled in a way. Um, and I, I do it, obviously, personally, but um, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about in terms of in the States where they have the, the tag system, and, and um, that's, that's very controlled, which mm. I'd, I'd hope New Zealand doesn't come to. I hope, um, I, I suppose I hope um, hunters in general don't let that happen, um, but it's, uh, it is a... It is a control. I mean, it's it's no different to ducks. You know, duck populations around the city just increasing because nothing's getting shot, nothing's getting controlled, and then the ducks are, um, you know, um, shitting everywhere, and then it becomes a big problem. Um, and we have, you know, parry culls and all that sort of stuff to control those numbers on farms because if if the parries are eating the, the the grass of the farmers, the farmers don't like it. It's no different to Canada geese. So we do have a responsibility to to step in on those occasions. And if I get asked by a farmer, can you come and can you come and control these these birds or these animals? Then then sure, I'm I'm first there to have a look and see what's what what's it actually about, and and the fish and game need to be you know notified to see if we can get a special permit to to eradicate some of them, that sort of stuff. Because end of the day, you want to keep the the landowners, which are giving us the access to the properties, happy, and um and stuff that's their livelihood and their grass at stake. So. It, um, the, the controlling the numbers, it's, it's a very big topic. Um, and as a selective hunter, there, there does come a time when, when you have to put that aside and say, well, no, we have to actually do a job here mm. and, let's, and, let's, and let's get the right people involved 
and use as much of this as we can. Um, I mean, I've culled Canada geese up north, and, and I've, I've sat there and breasted out hundreds and hundreds of Canada geese, and everybody's taken home, you know, a chilli bin full of Canada geese breasts, and then, and then we've made them all into salami. So, I was going to say, they make very good salami, and not that far away from where I'm sitting, there's a freezer that has still got some uh, some salami from last year from that very yep. bird. So, yep. 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 They do. No, they make great. fantastic I mean, any, salami. Yeah, anyone that doesn't, um, I mean, any, any game meat, um, I, know, I know friends that, you know, don't like eating duck, they'll still shoot them. And, but they still go and get the, all their duck breast at the end of the season made into salami. It makes great duck you know, salami and you can mix it with other things. And So there, there's no reason to not use use the meat, if you know what I mean. It's mm. just it's almost laziness if you don't take the time to. I mean, I, I breast all my birds out, pheasants and ducks and things, purely because I don't have enough room in my freezers to, to stack all my meat. And, and it, it's, it's a more efficient way of, um, of, of stacking them in the freezer to start with, but obviously I can use them a lot. A lot more ways. That I, I sort of grew up on roast roast duck, um, whole duck, and and I don't really like eating it that much now. So, but I love eating duck, so I do it more in stir fries and schnitzel, and and having the or on the barbecue, and, and having the breasts to be able to just whack them out of the freezer and thaw them out when you want them, and and do whatever you need to with um, is a lot easier to deal with, um, and it doesn't take long to whip the breasts off a bird and, and maybe the legs as well. Mm. Well, so and, and then just going back to using the animal. I mean, I use. Um, with my primitive archery now, I'm, I'm using all the sinew for um, out of the out of the um, the tendons of the deer uh, and the back off the back straps to to do my beadwork um, and to stitch with, and also to tie my um, arrows or to tie the, the fletches, the feathers onto the arrows in a primitive way. So um, that that all gets used as well, and that's quite a good. Um, it, when I look at my arrows, it's quite good to see the. You know, I've shot the shot the turkey with the with the bow that I'm using to get the feathers to put them on the to put them on the arrow <laughs> to shoot another animal. You know what I mean? So, yeah. and and then that and the sinew that's on that arrow is from this deer, and you know, it's all it's all been put together, and it's just time that it hasn't cost me anything really, except time um, and 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 the enjoyment hmm. of um of you know creating what I'm creating and and also putting food on the table. I'd like to thank you for your interview and I think what we've done here is we've opened a whole lot of topics I want to explore with you in future interviews so let's do this again yeah, sure. and and we'll, we'll list out those topics because you have you've actually you've opened up uh, the idea of even the, the you know using things like the teepee as well I want to talk to you more about that um, I want to talk to you more about some of those primitive hunting techniques and using all of the animal and I think that's a lesson that many hunters including myself can can use a whole lot more because although I, yeah, made, I pride a, myself on taking the meat, there's 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 more to it, isn't there? Yeah, there is. I mean, it's, uh, it's as, I, as I mentioned to you, um, the, the, all the topics that I could cover are huge topics in themselves. And mm. um, I mean, I've been hunting for um, you know um, thirty years, and 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 so it, and that's only a short a short amount of time, really, in a lifetime. So it, it, it's only built up, and um, you know, from what I've learnt, and, and you're always learning, so it's always it's always building and building further and further. So um, it's it's never-ending, really. <laughs> so let's catch up in a few months' time. Let's talk about or refine down some of these topics. It's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you for taking the time out for our first show of 2016. Not a problem. Thank you, Stephen. That's us for another week of The Hunting Show for 2016. Thank you for listening in the numbers that you do, and thank you to our great sponsors. Be careful out there, guys, and good hunting. We'll
Podcasting from an undisclosed location, from a secret hunting spot known only to him and the guy who told him about it, and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics.